Hello, Julia Campbell here with a very time-sensitive pre-roll. I have opened the doors to my brand new course for nonprofits, The Digital Fundraising Formula. It's a step-by-step blueprint to launching wildly successful online fundraising campaigns and a formula that you can use over and over again. And the doors are only open until September 20th. Class starts September 20th. So go to digitalfundraisingformula.com digitalfundraisingformula.com and take a look, sign up, register. And I really hope to see you on the inside. All right, let's get to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Nonprofit Nation podcast. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I am really extremely excited for our guest today. Her name is Beth Cantor. Some of you might know her, be familiar with her work. She is an internationally recognized thought leader in digital transformation and well-being in the nonprofit workplace. She was named one of the most influential women in technology by Fast Company and has over three decades of experience in designing and delivering training and capacity building programs for nonprofits and foundations. Beth is a sought-after keynote speaker and workshop leader, and she's presented at nonprofit conferences on every inhabited continent of the world to thousands of nonprofits. I love that. So Antarctica? Not yet, but is if that you not have inhabited? Lead, that's yeah, it's not inhabited. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. And Beth and I were just trying to figure out where we met, and we figured out that it was at the nonprofit technology conference when it was held in Washington, DC, which we believe was in 2017. And I had known Beth because John Hayden, who is a dear friend of both of us, had introduced me to her work. And Beth, you know this, I've told you this a thousand times. You are the reason that I discovered that I could do what I do, that I could do consulting and speaking and workshops around technology and digital marketing and social media for nonprofits. When I read your book, The Network Nonprofits, so you know that. So (laughs) thank you so much. And Beth also wrote the intro to my second book, wrote the foreword to my second book. So I really appreciate you being here. I know that we'll talk about maybe a little bit teaser at the end for your next book. And I know you need to be writing. So we will get, (laughs) we will, we'll get going. So what I like to do on the podcast, I like to begin with kind of a brief story. You know, how did you get involved with nonprofit work? And it might not be a brief story and that's completely fine. Oh gosh. Well, right out of school. And I was trained as a classical musician. So I was 
trying to get a degree in classical flute. And I had aspirations to sit first chair in the Boston Symphony. And if you know anything about the music world, classical music world, if you apply for an orchestra job, no matter how good you are, 500 people are applying and they're just really hard to get. So at one point, my flute teacher had said to me, and he was the second flutist in the New York Philharmonic, he noticed that I was tracking all everything and how I was you know, practicing. And he said, you know what? You'd be really good on the management side. Why don't you check that out? So I got all these introductions to interview the general, at the time, this was like 40 years ago, this is 1980, to interview like the general managers of the major symphonies, including Boston. And I went in like, oh, I want to be the general manager of the, you know, the symphony. What do I need to know how to do? And, and I got, they're all being men. You got to learn how to type, honey. Oh so my. That was the thing. You had to know how to type to get a job, really. And especially yep. if you're, yeah. It's kind of sexist thing to say, but whatever. Very sexist thing. (laughs) But so I, so I learned how to type, but I took my metronome and my music training and I slowly went and practiced all the typing until I could do it really fast and accurately. So I could type like 120 words a minute really fast. Wait, I love that you're saying that. (laughs) I just want to interrupt you for a minute. The reason why I think I'm such a fast typer is I took piano. And so you have that finger choreography and that's so interesting. You're but the only also, other person I've heard say that. But also too, with the discipline of practice, you start slowly yes. and then you gradually speed up. Yes. So anyway, I got a job at the Boston Symphony in the development office. And at that point it was really small. So I learned all, I did all the prospect research. I learned annual campaigns. I learned a lot, mm-hmm. but I wanted to get into the production and management side. So at that point I asked, I went in and asked the general manager, Tom Morris, it was at the time. And he said, mm-hmm. well, go manage one of the smaller groups around town. So I became general manager of the Pro Art Day Chamber Orchestra. And that's kind of how I started. I was there. I did some really big fundraising things, grew them. And then I kind of got into consulting with arts nonprofits. Mm-hmm. And then around 19, I want to say 1987, 88, I discovered the internet. <laughs> and I, I was just enthralled by all the technology. And eventually I got a job at the New York Foundation for the Arts for their ArtsWire program, which was their online network, which was way ahead of its time. I mean, this is like 90, wow. 1990. And then the web happened and I started teaching nonprofits how to get on email, how to do the web. Mm-hmm. And so then that like that chunk of my career was always kind of working the nonprofit sector and learning the technology and then teaching it back and working with nonprofits. So it's mission driven. So tell me about the work that you do now. Yeah. So I'm still in a sense doing that with technology, you know, and I, my heart is around uh, nonprofit tech. I'm on the board of N10 and I do a lot of work around digital transformation. And, you know, my social media history, Mm -hmm. but I'm also, I, I, along this time, I also had a twin track of wanting to be a really great facilitator and a trainer and both in person and online, even before the pandemic. So I sort of combined those, those, the subject matters, uh, subject matter (laughs) Mm -hmm. are digital transformation and workplace well-being, And those relate to my books. And then I do a lot of facilitation of retreats, learning, peer group learning and workshops and speaking, of course. Yes. Well, let's jump into actually facilitation and events. And what I want to talk about, I mean, what what do you see as being fundamentally changed, like fundamental shifts that are happening, not even just in the sector, but just in terms of events, in terms of facilitation and workshops? What do you see having, like, what can we take with us that we have learned in 2020, hopefully, what can we take with us into the future? Such a great question. (laughs) So hybrid, hybrid, 
workplace models, you know, mm-hmm. sort of, we know that not all of us right away are going to be back going back into the office, either because of whatever the public health guidelines are. We don't know what's going to happen with the virus and people's comfort levels. And, mm-hmm. you know, when we were suddenly remote, you know, we learned that we could still be productive working remotely to a certain extent. We also discovered that we probably just tried to shove everything into a Zoom meeting. Mm-hmm. And it's exhausting because of Zoom fatigue and having the cognitive load that it, it puts on you to, to work that way. And we didn't really adapt and refine the way we we're working to, to be really highly effective and energetic and have a great sense of well-being while we're working remotely. So now we're kind of starting to do that. And now we have this other shift coming, the hybrid workplace, right? Mm-hmm. So that's where a handful of people work in the office or, and the others are working remotely. Hybrid work is not new. It was here before the pandemic, but before it was, you know, people who were coming in remotely were, uh, it was a smaller number. Those uh, arrangements were negotiated between manager and employee. And, um, and often that was a bad experience for, for people who were remote because you've probably had this where you're remote, everyone else is in the room. They have the privilege of being face-to-face. And sometimes mm-hmm. they just forget the remote people. They're just hanging out there. So mm-hmm. what's ha- what's going to happen, I think now, is that we think about the main office, the power structure of the main office, right? It just becomes another node on the network or the remote distributed uh, workforce. And I think we really have to put a lot of thought into inclusion, um, that everybody has the same experience, ability to participate. I mean, there's equity issues in terms of equipment and internet access, but there's also something, and I'm talking a lot about this, called the proximity bias. And the proximity bias is, it's also been called the go-getter bias. So, okay, so who's in the office with the boss? If the boss sees you, there's a bias there to think, oh, that person's working really hard. And the person who's remote, oh, what are they spoofing off? Or the person uh, that's staying till 7 p.m. as opposed to the person that's super productive exactly. leaving and at three. Yes, exactly. And then, so you got to think about who who gets to be in the office when, if we're going to go to flexibility schedules, you know, a couple of days in the office, a couple of days out. And also if you're going to give people what their preferences are. And if we think about this, women want fl- more flexible workspaces. I mean, you and I both know the reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> why, why is your door locked? <laughs> My door is literally yeah. locked right now. Right. Exactly. Because we're juggling <laughs> kids and it's way, you know, it's so much easier to be a, a mom and work when you have flex workplace than it is mm-hmm. having to go into the office. And also there's studies showing that people of color have a preference for working remotely because they're not dealing with a sl- onslaught of microaggressions. So you think about all of that, and then you think about the proximity bias, you know, you could ha- end up having two classes of employees and advancing certain certain ones over others. So people have to start thinking about, you know, it's really about the deliverables. It's not about the screen time. You have to thoughtfully think about your flexibility schedules, you know, when you're going to be in the office, who else is going to be in the office. It starts thinking about rethinking physical space. Will everybody have their own desk? Who gets a side office? Or is it going to be, we're going to transform the office really just for in-face, in-person interaction. And then I think we really have to get better at figuring out like how we do our work together or our culture, you know, the way things get done. And how do we divide between real-time work, which is synchronous and asynchronous work? I always mispronounce that word. And then my husband shouts in the background the corrective <laughs> pronunciation. Synchronous I, and asynchronous. Asynchronous. Work. And I got it right. So it means that like we're all used to having the meeting in real time, face to face, be the central, central place of how we got work done. And that's going to shift. 
we're not going to go back to the way it was. No, I, no. nor should we. I don't think. No, we not at all. Not at all. Because why should we give up what we learn in terms of flexibility? Because flexibility is a key contributor to people feeling well, having well-being at work. That flexibility is really important. So people can maintain that work-life balance. So I think, you know how nonprofits are. It's like steering a cruise ship to get them to change, to get them to adapt from the status quo. And that's just sometimes because of budget, sometimes because of capacity, sometimes because of board members, sometimes because of skepticism. But what are some tips that you have for managers for people that really want to avoid this proximity bias, they want to be inclusive, they want to have a vibrant hybrid team. What are some tips and strategies you can give them? That's a really great question. Now, we're talking about changing culture or right. the way the way things we do around here. And that's kind of like, you know, you don't see it, right? It's not like yeah. something, ah, you check it off the list. It's not sure. like how to write a grant proposal or yes. how to send out a tweet. It's about purpose, values, behaviors, recognition, rituals, and cues. And where the stress happens is when there's a disconnect between values. We say we're going to do this, but our behaviors are different. Mm. So I think it's time to really start with kind of intentional conversations around Mm -hmm. culture and things like, for example, like what are our values? articulate those, and then relate them to the different kinds of behaviors around getting work done. That's communication, collaboration, feedback, making decisions, being inclusive, handling conflict, handling how you prioritize work, and also how you measure performance, and then coming up with plans around that based out of that conversation. So you're, in a sense, creating new norms for a hybrid workplace. And it's great because it's like a reset. This is a great time to kind of really be intentional about that. Now, when you create new behaviors as part of culture, it's kind of like creating new habits, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you know, at New Year's, you know, we say, I'm going to lose 10 pounds and I'm going to start running 10 miles a day Mm -hmm. that, you know, it doesn't always happen. So I think it has to happen in, in these baby steps. So for example, let's say that there's some norms. So there's a value that you talk about that we're going to listen to everybody and give everyone voice and be inclusive, right? So maybe that comes a norm that goes on your meeting agendas. <laughs> and you say those out loud before you have your meeting. And then I at the end of the meeting, you say, how well did we do? And it's this learning and you know this kind of feedback loop while you're practicing it until it becomes part of the way you do things around here. Absolutely walking the walk and not just articulating your values and putting them on your website, but really integrating them into every meeting, into every interaction. Yes. Oh, I love that. Okay. So uh, there are 10,000 different topics that I want to pick your brain on because (laughs) while we have you here, (laughs) whatever's left of it. right? (laughs) Oh no. But I, we were talking earlier and I do think that nonprofits, event planners, fundraisers, people want to know, they ask me all the time. And I asked you before, and I would love your opinion again. What do you feel is the future for events, for conferences, for fundraisers? What do you think? Hybrid, virtual, in-person? I've been grappling with this because one of my main jobs is to facilitate a convening for a foundation. And we had to go virtual this year and mm. we're now planning for 2023 and we're asking this question. I'm also looking into you know what's out there. So I think 
it's a couple of things. I don't think there's a set answer to that <laughs> mm-hmm. because there's so many things we don't know, like about what the public health requirements are going to be. Right. Mm-hmm. I do hear these murmurings around. We want to get, you know, we want to get back face to face. We want to get back to the, you know, we want to see you. And I have that too. I, w- I want to see you, Julia. I want to see you mm-hmm. at, you know, a, the conferences we used to go to and yeah. be able to give you a hug and like yes. have a glass of wine with you or whatever, you know, oh, or gin and tonic like uh, we did in San Diego. <laughs> right. Or you had that. gin and tonic and I had a white wine maybe, but I think what's going to happen is that there may be smaller in-person events, but there's going to be hybrid components to them. Yes. And so we might have plenary content is easy because we know how to do that live stream. Right. And then have a, a chat going on and be able to have someone in the room who can integrate the people from afar to the speakers in the room, you know, monitoring the chat and verbalize the question to the speaker. Um, what's really exciting me and what I'm looking about at are what are all the ways that you can do hybrid in smaller groups that are sort of interactive things that aren't like just a webinar? Like how can you integrate both like in the room sticky notes with virtual sticky notes or oh creative processes? Like remember the session we did with the yes. posters? Like the posters, the sticky notes where we had the four corners and the small groups. How do you do that virtually? Yeah, it's, it's hard, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. there's, there are some tools that you can do it. It's easier if it's all virtual, honestly, because I've done a lot of that over the last 18 months, virtual sticky notes and kind of design thinking kinds of processes. But it's how do you do that when there's some people in the room and some people also remotely. And I think it comes down to really good bridge moderation and bridge facilitation so that facilitator, their responsibility is to make sure that the people in the room are connecting with the people who are remote. That So it's inclusive. So it's really being thoughtful and strategic. It's almost like how people should be planning conferences, even if they're in person, <laughs> making sure it's a great experience for all of the attendees. Yeah. You know, I'm remembering now that conference, wherever we met in DC, I remember, mm, I, I'm thinking like it was even earlier than 2017, but I remember at one point N10, and it might've been even before Amy, they were doing some live remote NTC and they were all designed as live broadcast. And they came to me, we want to do your session, which was a training session. It was completely mm-hmm. interactive. Mm-hmm. Like we were doing, having people line up in four corners yep. of the room and all yep. of that. And all of a sudden they're here's, you know, a laptop <laughs> with a bunch of people. So we had to assign one person to that laptop who, mm-hmm. who managed, who managed the chat, one of our speakers, and then also brought the laptop over to the small group yes. and could facilitate the conversation because otherwise it wouldn't have worked. Hey there, I'm interrupting this episode to share an absolutely free training that I created that's getting nonprofits of all sizes, big results. Sure. You've been spending hours on social media, but what can you actually show for it? With all this posting and Instagramming and TikToking, does it really translate into action? In my free training, I'll show you exactly how to take people from passive fans to passionate supporters, and I'll give you specific steps to create social media content that actually converts. Head on over to nonprofitsthatconvert.com. Again, that's nonprofitsthatconvert.com and start building a thriving social media community for your nonprofit right now without a big team, lots of tech overwhelm, or getting stuck on the question, what do I do next? Let me show you how it's done. I can't wait to see what you create.
Another topic that I want to talk about, especially going into, I was saying pandemic adjacent, post-pandemic, next normal, new normal, whatever we want to call it, is self-care, avoiding overwhelm and avoiding burnout. So you wrote the book, The Happy Healthy Nonprofit, um, Strategies for Impact Without Burnout in 2016, but that seems more relevant now than ever. So can you talk about self-care and how nonprofits can practice self-care, why it's an essential piece of doing effective work? Sure. That's a, um, uh, a topic that's near and dear to my heart. So I wrote the book in 2015, published it in 2016, right after Trump was elected. Oh, and wow. initially in the beginning- We needed it then. <laughs> right. And people didn't want to talk about this. It was a taboo topic. We don't talk about burnout. It's a soft skill. No one wanted to talk about well-being in the workplace, in the nonprofit. Mm. Within the nonprofit crowds that I was running out in at the time. And I was seeing people burn out. So I'm like, mm-hmm. what's going on here? And certainly, like everything else, the pandemic has really accelerated and accentuated and made kind of like our the way we are in this sector because we're so passionate about it. You know, we, we tend to overwork because of our passion mm-hmm. and that it's passion isn't a sustainable resource. We have to renew it. And also this kind of work from home has like gotten work-life balance really out of, you know, kilter. It's like, do I, I can't remember, do I work at home or do I live at work, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if I was showing you slides, I would show you the slide of a bar graph that shows how many hours on average people work per week in different countries pre-pandemic compared to post-pandemic. We can then, link to it if it's on your blog. Sure. And, um, but basically we're working longer hours mm-hmm. because we're working from home in part because, you know, we couldn't go out, <laughs> you know? So what else are we going to do work? And I think we, it's so easy for us to carry that into where we're going. And um, the other thing that's happening is that we are in the midst of a kind of public a mental health crisis because yes. there's depression, anxiety, all of those things are on the rise, you know, because of the pandemic, because we've been closed off from a lot of our support systems. And then there's another, like, kind of condition. Um, Adam Grant called it languishing. You might I have seen love that. Adam Grant languishing. I, you, I read, yeah. I saw that talk, or I read that article. It, that described exactly how I have been feeling. And me too. It's kind of blah, not mm-hmm. motivated. You feel dull. And so the idea is, is that we need to like go from languishing to flourishing, which mm. is really being alive and like flourishing. I think of lush flowers. I think of gardens growing and, you know, and so that requires us taking care of ourselves, doing things like getting enough sleep, creating moments of joy in our life, getting enough exercise working to, you know, putting boundaries around things. Boundary management is really important as we both know with your family and both around digital. So really putting these practices in um, place so we can switch this languishing, languishing to flourishing. I love that. And I love following you on Instagram, on Facebook, seeing your walks in San Francisco. So how did you practice self-care during COVID? What are some ways that you did? Uh, three things. <laughs> I'll go back to the moments of joy. I installed a hummingbird feeder on the window <gasps> in our house. Yes. And maybe you've seen some of the photos of the hummingbirds. And mm-hmm. and when I learned about them, they're very ter- territorial. And we had mm. this one bird, an Anna's hummingbird with the red hood. I, his name was Bully Bird, and he would chase away all the other birds. So I read that if you put up more feeders, there's too much for them to try to 
like take over. So I put up another five feeders. And yes. so he couldn't control them all. And so now yeah. we have more and there's a little bit more harmony. So oh. incorporate moments of joy. The second thing is change your view. My husband and I have this thing like go to the coast day. Like we'll decide like at two o'clock in the afternoon, we're 45 minutes from the Pacific Ocean and it's gorgeous. We'll just take off and go to the coast, go for a walk, go stare at the waves. It's healing. Sometimes I've just like, I'm going to take my laptop and my phone and just go work like in Half Moon Bay because I have that flexibility. I love Half Moon Bay. Oh my Yeah. So, and then the third thing is this walking. I, I have my fake commute. So I walk every morning and there is research that just came out from the, it's Microsoft human factors lab that if you're taking even a five minute break to walk around the block or something um, that, that helps fight that zoom fatigue. So I, I've just continued my walking 15,000 steps a day on the Fitbit, no matter what. No way. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You're my hero. I got a Fitbit for Christmas and I don't wear it because I started to feel bad about how few steps that I could, that I got. Well, I try to take well, a lot of walks though. Well, I guess there's like three different, you know, there are three different personalities that get Fitbits. Some that get it and stop because of that. Others track for a while until they know like what 10,000 steps feels like. And then yes. others that get totally obsessed like me. So yes. I have like roots in my neighborhood that I know that's a thousand steps. I can do that in five minutes or I have 20 minutes. I'm going to go out and I can get another 5,000 steps. That's and I'm just obsessed with it. That's, <laughs> and that's I've had really this smart. Since 2013. So yes. And you've always talked about it and you've been really public about it. You've also been, I love promoting walking meetings even before COVID. Um, I'm calling really them strolling meetings now. Strolling meetings. Yes. Because not all everyone can walk. So some people can roll so you can stroll. <laughs> exactly. So I would be remiss if I had one of the preeminent digital thought leaders in the nonprofit sector here. And I didn't ask, what do you see as some of the most important and noteworthy future digital trends for nonprofits? Oh, that's such a great question. <laughs> um, and you can segue into maybe a little teaser for your future oh, sure, book with Allison. Sure. Well, I think just initially, some of what we've been talking about, I've seen the pandemic, because it wasn't a choice, we've seen so much movement on digital transformation in the nonprofit sector and people realizing, yes, we can do this. And the resistance kind of melt away. And that's a good thing. But we also had like frictionless adoption. <laughs> mm. So which meant that some weren't necessarily adopting strategically. I'll give an example, like now we can put our services online. So we're not just focused on the local geographic community. We can serve other people, but they didn't really think about that in a strategy way. So I think coming, people are maybe going back and rethinking business models, or as we were talking before about rethinking the way they do their work to incorporate this hybrid New technologies that are coming, and it's they're already here, automation and artificial intelligence. Um, Allison Fine and I are writing a book, and we call them smart technologies. So we're writing a book called The Smart Nonprofit, Staying Human-Centered in an Automated World. And we're looking at the impact that automation will have on nonprofits, fundraising, programming, back office. And it's not a book that, that looks at all the bright side because there's so many unintended consequences and unintended harms that can happen. Mm -hmm. And so looking at processes like, you know, how to do threat modeling, (laughs) how to figure out what those unintended, unintended consequences are. How do you like have a thoughtful way of staying human centered with this while 
keeping your ethics at the highest moral standard. Mm -hmm. And then ways that you can really iterate and inch your way into using the tech versus like kind of full on adoption. So that's what the book is going to cover with initial examples of what we're seeing. We're still in the early stages. Right. Did you see any great examples of digital transformation or nonprofits sort of adopting digital, incorporating it into their work during the pandemic, or have you seen any innovations in the last year? I saw one then, and we looked at it in the book, and I'll, I'll give the cool side, and then I'll give the, <laughs> this didn't happen, but the potential unintended consequence. So mm. I think it might have been Boston, actually, where mm. one of the food banks, because of at the height of the pandemic, a lot of the food banks have volunteers. A lot of those volunteers tend to be older, so they weren't coming into the food bank to help pack boxes and do inventory. So they had robotics come in to do the, some of the volunteer tasks of packing boxes with food and kind of doing the inventory and also to sanitize, which I thought was really cool. I think now like one would wonder, okay, so as things change, do you keep this and just go into default mode? Or do you actually kind of look around and, and talk to those volunteers about how do they feel about being replaced by robots, right? Yes. Will that disenfranchise them? Yeah. And we know people who volunteer then tend to be donors. So it's thinking about like, okay, now as we integrate something like this, how do they cobot effectively alongside the, you know, the humans, you know, how do you, you know, how do you like figure out like what gets automated, what goes to the machine, what goes to the human? It's not totally replacing the, the human job, but it's, you know, working together and you have to prepare your people for that, prepare your processes. But I thought that was, there have been a lot of innovations directly related to COVID, mm-hmm. like even fi- the um, vaccine research mm-hmm. was accelerated in part because they use machine learning algorithms to kind of predictive analytics, to take a look at like what combination of proteins might work. So that was accelerated. There's also it didn't work great in the beginning, but algorithms around deploying the vaccine initially, we're seeing a more the use of automation in terms of now having vaccine registries and yes. those sorts of things. I love that. I love that. I want to just ask you one more question just to kind of get your input on this. How do you counsel nonprofits that are afraid of change? <laughs> How do you counsel them and consult and just give them tips on? how to manage the constant, constant tidal waves of, of change that we're going through, especially oh. with technology. Oh, oh gosh. Oh, well, we have to address it. You know, change is hard, as we mm-hmm. know. Like, even when I'm doing training, I, I usually start with an exercise around to think about, all, you know, how does all this change make you feel, right? Put that out there, let it out. And then what do you need to do to, you know, what do you need to do to make, I must do X, right? Mm-hmm. And then when it's all said and done, you know, what's the outcome? Just so just sort of think about like the why you're doing it, the, the benefit to understand how the change is impacting you and to be able to develop um, strategies to like buffer yourself from that. Exactly. But first you have to recognize that it's there. Recognize you know? that it's there. And not get caught in it. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Well, Beth, thank you so much. I want to know how can people reach you? How can they get in touch with you and learn more about you? www.bethcantor.org on the web. And then you can also always find me on Twitter at Cantor or also on LinkedIn. Awesome. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Check out all of Beth's books. We will link to them in the show notes. We will link to them anywhere that we have this episode 
you know, published. So, and I would love to have you and Allison on to talk about the book, Artificial Intelligence and Automation. What's it called? The Smart Nonprofit? Yeah. Staying human-centered in an automated world. I love that. Just a quick question. Did you ever hear about Stephen Shattuck's book, uh, Robots Robots. Make Terrible Fundraisers? Yes, yes, yes. Great book. Yes. So shout out to Stephen Shattuck. It made me think of that. I thought that was, I thought that was really, I thought that was a good Yeah. The robots can't take your donors out to lunch. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, thanks so much. And we'll have you back on the podcast, I hope. So take care. Great. Thanks. Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode, but until then you can find me on Instagram at Julia Campbell, seven, seven, keep changing the world. You nonprofit unicorn. Thank you.